Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab grown diamond bands, all hand finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast. The podcast dedicated to serial killers. Who they were, what they did and how. Episode 154. I am your Norwegian host, Thomas Rosaland Weiborg Thun. And tonight, I am happy to present to you something several of my dear listeners have asked for a standalone feature of a single serial killer. Autumn is approaching fast here in Norway, and I can already feel the chill in the air from the coming cold. It is not pleasant to think about the seven or eight months of cold and frozen weather we have in store here in the high north. So instead, let us sojourn to the balmy golden state. Yes, the one state that has more infamous serial killers than any other place on earth. I am, of course, talking about the great state of California in the United States of America. Our subject is, again, not as famous as the serial killer superstars, but his depraved acts should place him firmly in the canon of serial killer lore. It is a classic serial killer saga I am presenting you with tonight, one involving a young handsome man who happens also to really like torturing and killing young women. Liked it so much, in fact, that he tortured and killed several of them before being stopped. He has, just as old Lucifer does, many nicknames. The Chiller Killer, the Boy Next Door Killer, but the one that tends to stick is the Hollywood Ripper. His name is Michael Thomas Gargiulo. And this is the story of his life and crimes. Enjoy. As always, I want to publicly thank my elite TSK Producers Club. 
Their names are Andrea, Boo, Cassandra, Chris, Christy, Cody, Connor, Corbin, Fawn, Gilly, James G, James H, James S, Jared, Jennifer, Juliet, Kathy, Kevin, Kylie, Lisa, Lisbeth, Marilyn, Meow, Operation BP, Russell, Sabina, Samira, Scotnia, Shauna, Tony, Trent, and Val. You are the backbone of the Serial Killer Podcast, and without you, there would be no show. You have my deepest gratitude. Thank you. I am forever grateful for my elite TSK Producers Club, and I want to show you that your patronage is not given in vain. As mentioned in the last episode, going forward, all TSK episodes will be available 100% ad-free to my TSK Producers Club on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast. No generic ads, no ad reads, no jingles. I promise. And of course, if you wish to donate $15 a month, that's only $7.50 per episode, you are more than welcome to join the ranks of the TSK Producers Club too. So don't miss out and join now. Imagine, if you will, someone having their throat cut. It is one of the most painful ways to die there is. If the killer cuts one carotid artery, you will fall over in about fifteen seconds in a squirt of arterial blood, and you will likely die in six to eight minutes, and go unconscious first with the loss of pain only coming toward the end. If the killer cuts the air tube, and at least one artery, as is the case in the killings of tonight's expose, the victims will begin gasping for air and inhaling their own blood. The pain is horrific, beyond anything people who have not experienced it themselves can imagine. But any attempts to scream just hurries the process of drowning in one's own blood. The horror of it may also have caused the victims to vomit, which would subsequently have entered their air tube. Death would occur in the form of drowning and suffocating on their own vomit and blood. Due to shock and extreme terror, the victims probably defecated themselves as well and they probably experienced all of this before the blissful arrival of unconsciousness. But remember, tonight's killer also stabbed his victims after he had cut their throats, causing further pain and terror. The feel of the steel cutting into their flesh would have been vivid, as their adrenaline would awaken them to be extra conscious of their surroundings. The way the Hollywood Ripper killed can rightfully be described as torture. 
Ashley Ellerin was like many beautiful young women in Hollywood. Attractively lively and fun-loving, she was a fixture of the party circuit with no shortage of friends. With a bungalow within walking distance of the fabled Hollywood Walk of Fame, Ashley lived in an enclave frequented by actors, directors, producers, and others seeking to grab a foothold in the limelight. The 22-year-old left her upper-middle-class family in Northern California and arrived in Hollywood in 1999. The striking blonde turned heads and soon started modeling. She also enrolled in the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising because she was a creative and thought she could be a designer. But, as with all things in life, there is no such thing as a free lunch. So, with the Hollywood lifestyle came a darker side. Friends of hers said Ashley used cocaine and crystal methamphetamine while partying the nights away. She would also take trips to Las Vegas, where she worked as a stripper and pole dancer. Her roommate, Jennifer DeSisto, said Ashley hung out with a lot of Hollywood celebrity types. According to Jennifer, her friend was very friendly and a free-spirited kind of person. One of Ashley's biggest coups was getting up-and-coming actor Ashton Kutcher as a boyfriend. The pair had been seen out and about in Hollywood together before he asked her to attend a post-Grammy Awards party on the 21st of February 2001. The plan for Kutcher was to watch the ceremony at a friend's house and meet Ashley afterward around 10.30pm. The couple spoke on the phone at 7.30 p.m. and again at 8.24 p.m. But Ashley never showed up. Getting no answer on her cell phone, Kutcher drove to her home, thinking that she might be waiting for him to pick her up. He knocked on her front door at 10.45 p.m., but still got no answer. He tried the doorknob, but it was locked. Kutcher peered through a window and couldn't really see anything wrong. The only thing that stood out to him was a dark red spill that looked like red wine on a landing leading to her bedroom. Thinking that she was upset and had brushed him off for some reason, Kutcher concluded that she was probably out with someone else, so, according to court documents, he left. Ashley's roommate didn't sleep at home the night of the Grammys because she had left her keys at a friend's house. Half an hour before Kutcher showed up, she had knocked on the door, hoping to get in. Ashley's car was in the driveway, and the lights were on. When there was no answer, Jennifer DeSisto left and came back at 8.30 the next morning after she had retrieved her keys. Upon entering the house, DeSisto didn't notice anything unusual at first. Then she saw Ashley on a carpeted landing leading to the bedrooms. According to Jennifer, 
At first glance, her friend was kind of blue in the face and had some blood around her mouth. But as Jennifer got closer, she saw the horror of what had happened to her friend more clearly. Wearing a turquoise terry cloth robe, Ashley lay face up on the landing, sprawled in a large pool of blood. Someone had tried to cut off Ashley's head, creating a wound so deep that it had only been stopped by her spinal cord. Her attacker evidently tried to finish the job from behind, as a V-shaped wound was gouged across the back of her neck as well. High-velocity blood spatter flung from the murder weapon marked the walls, ceiling, and even a nearby bathroom. Jennifer immediately called 911, and soon authorities arrived. It turned out that in a frenzied attack, Someone had stabbed the model forty-seven times, as she had vainly tried to fend off the assailant with her hands and arms, even grabbing the blade of the knife at one point. She was stabbed in the chest, abdomen, and in the back, with some of the wounds so deep that they pierced her lung. According to the medical examiner, twelve of her wounds some up to fifteen centimeters deep, would have been fatal by themselves. The back of her head had been stabbed as well. One of the stabbings had penetrated the skull and taken out a chunk of skull somewhat in the shape of a puzzle piece. Ashley's legs were slightly apart and one of them bent. This was an odd way to fall, leading police officers to speculate that her body had been moved. Some of her chest wounds appeared to have a downward thrust, suggesting she had been on the ground when stabbed. A bloody Adidas tennis shoe print on the hardwood living room floor led away from the gruesome scene. Detective Thomas Small was the officer who reported to the crime scene as lead detective. He said of the incident, the following, and I quote, This was violent overkill. The killer was a modern-day Jack the Ripper, vicious and very personal. He wanted to inflict as many wounds as he could. I knew in my mind that the person who did this was a serial killer, that he had done this before and had gotten away with it. End quote. Small quickly determined that the crime had not been a sexual assault nor motivated by robbery. Ashley had been wearing jewelry, and a $300 bundle of cash was found in the home. Under her robe, the model had been wearing a bra, boxer-style underwear, and a sleeveless undergarment. The windows were locked with security bars, and the locked front door was behind a metal screen door. None of these areas had pry marks. Either the killer had a key, or Ashley had invited her killer into the house. Small immediately began interviewing anyone he could find who knew her. There were no shortage of subjects to interview. The beautiful young woman had loved parties and was friendly and popular. 
people had been drawn to her. Small's partner, Detective Thomas Chevolek, spoke to Kutcher, who had not called 911 because it had not been apparent that a crime had been committed. According to Chevolek, Kutcher said there were no window coverings, so he could clearly see into the residence. He said the place was in a bit of disarray because she had been painting the walls, so that didn't raise any alerts to him. Kutcher stated to the detective that he had seen what he assumed to be was red wine on the carpet area that led to her bedroom. Ashley's father had been visiting and was helping with her home renovation project. She had dropped him off at the airport at 5.50 p.m. on the day she died. Later that evening, Ashley had been visited by Mark Durbin, manager of her rental house, who repaired a light fixture. The two had ended up having sex, Durbin later testified. As he was getting ready to leave around 8.15 p.m., Durbin said, Ashley asked him not to go because she didn't feel like attending the Grammy party. But Durbin was also involved with someone else, and that woman was due at his house. He had locked the front door, looked back through the window, and blown Ashley a kiss as he was leaving. Durbin lived in the complex and could see the front of Ashley's home from his own. An hour later, he happened to look out his window and saw a motion sensor light up the walkway in front of her home. In the light, Durbin saw a light-haired man, about six feet or 185 centimeters, tall and 80 kilos or 175 pounds, walking back and forth. Through the accounts of dozens of people that Detective Small interviewed, one constant kept popping up, the heater guy. It seemed like most of Ashley's friends had something to say about a mysterious heater repairman who had kept inserting himself into the model's life. It had started a year before her death. She had been standing in front of her house with friend Christopher Duran, who was fixing a flat tire on his car. A man walked up to help. According to Duran's later testimony, he was a heating and air conditioning man. Soon, the stranger was showing up at Ashley's house for unannounced visits or phoning her. He said he lived about a block away and walked his dog at a park across the street from her home. One incident in particular stood out. Duran told Detective Small that this heater guy had showed up at the door out of breath, sweating, and told Ashley and Duran about cops at his house, asking him about his ex-girlfriend in Chicago that was killed and that he was avoiding the police. Justin Peterson, who had briefly lived with Ashley, testified later that he once had given the man a ride home from an art gallery opening they had both attended. While in the car, the man had grabbed Peterson's arm and squeezed very hard. He dropped the stranger off 
at a green Ford pickup around 10 p.m. Peterson returned to the home he shared with Ashley around 3 a.m. and saw the truck parked in front, the motor running, and lights off, a person sitting inside. The next day, the man arrived to fix Ashley's heater, and Peterson demanded to know what he was doing outside their house. When confronted, the stranger started stuttering, and eventually tells Peterson he couldn't go home because the FBI was there, waiting to collect DNA samples from him. He continued to tell Peterson his best friend's girlfriend had been murdered. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's June already, my dear listeners. It feels like the days run away like wild horses over the hills. Luckily, we still have six more months of 2024. So, at the halfway mark, it's good to take stock. What are you proud of so far this year? What remains to be accomplished? Therapy can help you take stock of your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash serialkiller today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash serial killer. A month before Ashley died, she had thrown a party, and the mysterious stranger had been invited. He sat on a couch, did not socialize, and stared at Ashley the whole time. Peterson stated to police that Ashley thought he was a nice person, and that's why she did not fear him. In Detective Small's line of work, too many coincidences are usually suspicious. And this strange heater guy, who had no name, had been neither a friend nor a lover of Ashley, yet he had frequently sought her company. Always the gregarious one, Ashley had complied. During numerous interviews, Small was told that the heater guy, had once bragged about suing the owner of a truck 
who had struck him while he had been crossing a street near his home. The vehicle had belonged to a contractor who had been constructing the Kodak Theatre on Hollywood Boulevard, now home to the Academy Awards ceremony. Small contacted that company and inquired about lawsuits with pedestrians. None were found. Undaunted, he did a records check on all reported accidents in that area around the time of construction and came up with a hit. Someone had struck a dog, and the dog's owner had been one Michael Gargiulo. Now he had a name, and with that came a driver license picture. Armed with the new information, Small revisited his witnesses with a grouping of six photos including Gargiulo's and asked them to pick out Gargiulo if possible. They did. Small continued working the case. Then things took an unexpected turn in the fall of 2002. While at work one day, Small was visited by a few detectives who had flown out from the Cook County Sheriff's Office in Illinois. They had a photo of Gargiulo and his name. The Cook County detectives were investigating a 1993 murder and had tracked Gargiulo to Los Angeles in hopes of obtaining a DNA sample. He could not be located. In the following weeks, Small obtained a search warrant for a new Los Angeles address where Gargiulo was last known to have lived, a van he was driving, and a court-ordered DNA sample. The van was located and detectives found three different knives, a box cutter, binoculars, and the vehicle's license plates inside. Gargiulo's apartment was sparsely furnished, with no furniture other than a kitchen table and a chair. Bedding was on the floor, and men's clothing hung in the closet. A backpack containing a plastic Halloween mask and a handgun was also found. Gargiulo eventually arrived home, and he was immediately transported to a hospital to give blood, hair, and urine samples for a DNA test that would be forwarded to Cook County. En route to the hospital, Gargiulo said, and I quote, What if my DNA was on a keychain that was left at a crime scene? They can't find my DNA from ten years ago at a crime scene, can they? Why did it take them so long to find the DNA? End quote. LAPD detective Michael Pelletier, who was in charge of taking Gargiulo to the hospital, later testified to asking what Gargiulo was talking about. He replied simply saying, Never mind. Trisha Pacaccio had been a beautiful, studious, popular 18 year old girl days away from moving away to Purdue University to major in genetic engineering. Growing up in the upscale Chicago suburb of Glenview, Boccaccio had a storybook life filled with cheerleading, friends, music, and the debate team. Not one to drink or party, Boccaccio would rather be at home reading or studying. 
she had also lived one block away from Gargiulo. On the 13th of August 1993, Trisha was walking down the street on her way to meet her boyfriend, who was going to take her to a doctor's appointment. Gargiulo, who was then 17, drove by in his father's van with another friend inside and stopped to offer Trisha a ride. She accepted and was dropped off at her designated meeting place. The next day, Trisha got up as usual and went to her job at a department store cosmetics counter. She then came home and took a shower before heading out with two girlfriends to a road rally. After the rally, the girls ate at a TGI Friday's restaurant, then Trisha went home. It was 12.30 a.m. On the front porch, with her key in hand, Trisha never made it inside. Someone came up behind, twisting Pacaccio's left arm behind her back to the point that it fractured, causing immediate and extreme pain. Then she was stabbed a dozen times, including three fatal wounds to her heart, her left lung, and abdomen. She was also stabbed in the arm, the collarbone, and in the back. The attack happened so quickly that Trisha did not have a chance to fight back. As the young woman fell to the ground, though, dropping her door key next to her head, she was able to do one thing that would help detectives 17 years in the future and 2,800 kilometers away. She got someone's DNA under her fingernails. Trisha's body went undiscovered until the next morning when her father opened the front door. Unable to bear the tragedy, Trisha's family moved out of the home. Medical examiners recovered the DNA from under Trisha's fingernails, but could not make a match until they received Gargiulo's blood sample from Los Angeles in 2003. El Monte is a small working-class suburb of Los Angeles where someone like Maria Bruno could blend into the landscape while going about her daily life. It's a lower-income area where residents eke out a living in the shadow of their wealthy Los Angeles neighbors 24 kilometers west. It's a place that has seen an influx of prostitution, drugs, and gang crime over the past several decades. But there are pockets where people like Maria, 32 and single, lived in safety and relative comfort. That is, until the 1st of December 2005. On that night, a Jack the Ripper-style killer struck inside Maria's apartment in a frenzied attack that left the beautiful and well-liked aspiring model looking like she'd been drained of half her blood. Like the final Ripper victim, Mary Kelly, 107 years before, the killer had the benefit of an unclosed place where he could spend time systematically mutilating her body. The killer had entered Maria's apartment through a kitchen window, 
after she had gone to bed. He took a butcher knife from a sealed package in the kitchen and used it to slash her throat all the way down to the spine and stab the petite woman seventeen times in the chest, arm, and abdomen. The killer also cut off both of Maria's breasts, placing one of them in her gaping mouth. The latter occurred after Maria was unconscious, otherwise the cut would not have been as clean as it was. Maria had once commented to friends that there had been a weird guy at her building who had been seen watching her. About five days after her death, the man had followed her from the parking lot into her home and then exited about ten seconds later. When asked about it, she told neighbours not to worry about it. Her body was discovered by her ex-husband, Irving Bruno, who came to her house to take her to work. He was not considered a suspect because the pair had an amicable divorce and remained friends. The killer had stalked Maria, knew her routine, and knew she lived alone. The killer's modus operandi suggested it was someone who planned it, was methodical, systematic, organized, and knew what they were doing. The killer had spent a minimum of fifteen minutes and perhaps several hours at the crime scene. The detective found a blue hospital-style paper booty in front of Maria's apartment. It contained Maria's blood and also skin cells around the plastic that were not large enough to get a DNA match from. Santa Monica is a wealthy playground of sun, fun, and beautiful people. In 2008, it was home to Michelle Murphy, a beautiful 28-year-old blonde who worked in movie post-production and lived in an upstairs apartment a dozen blocks from the beach. Often going for a jog or exercising in the carport under her apartment, Michelle would sometimes see a van parked in the alley with the name Gus the Plumber painted on the side. Once in a while, she would see a tall, dark-haired man near the van and would say hello in passing. On the 28th of April, 2008, Michelle went to sleep just like any other night, but suddenly awoke just before midnight to the searing pain of someone plunging a knife into her chest. A man was straddling her body and continued stabbing her in the shoulder and right arm as she wriggled sideways to get away. At one point, Michelle grabbed hold of the blade, which sliced her fingers to the bone. The assailant was having a difficult time holding down Michelle, who was nude and slippery because of her blood. At one point, the attacker ended up slicing his own wrist. He paused, and this allowed Michel to get feet under his chest and launched him off the bed and onto the wall. He hit the bedroom door. The attacker then mumbled, Sorry, before running out the front door. He had entered through a window, 
but had left the front door ajar for an easy getaway after the attack. Michelle's quick wits and grit had saved her life. Detective Lewis responded to the scene and found a blood trail leading down Michelle's steps and across the alley and down a walkway toward another apartment complex. The blood-soaked bedding was tested for DNA, as were the outside droplets. A month later, Lewis had a match, thanks to the DNA blood sample that Chicago investigators had entered into a national database. It was Michael Gargiulo. In 2007, Gargiulo had started working for Gus the Plumber. By now, he had gotten married and moved in with his wife, Ana Luz Gonzalez. Together, they lived in a Santa Monica apartment, across an alley from Michelle Murphy. In fact, Gargiulo's new home gave him an unobstructed view into Murphy's kitchen and dining room. The night of Murphy's attack, Anna Luz was home asleep. When Detective Lewis got the DNA match, he remembered a visit he had received a few months earlier from Detective Lilienfeld. Coincidentally, Lilienfeld was inquiring about the murder of another model, Juliana Redding, in Santa Monica, to see whether it might be similar to Maria Bruno's. Redding's case turned out to be unrelated, but Lewis now wondered if Murphy's attack might be linked. Lewis also got another lead after calling Chicago detectives to talk about Gargiulo, and he was told that LAPD had a similar stabbing. The three detectives decided to meet, along with a deputy district attorney. Murphy's case was pretty cut and dried so the district attorney's office filed an attempted murder charge on the 10th of June, 2008, less than two months after the attack. Now that he knew his suspect's name, Lilienfeld discovered that Gargiulo lived in the same apartment complex as Maria Bruno. Even though Gargiulo was long gone, Lilienfeld searched the apartment. He found nothing in the main part of the home, but noticed an attic and got a ladder to crawl inside. Up there, in a plastic baggie, he discovered a blue medical booty that matched the one he found two years earlier in front of Maria Bruno's apartment. This time, there were enough skin cells on the new booty to do a DNA test. It came back to Gargiulo. Now, with DNA matching Gargiulo to two murders and one attempted murder, Detective Small had enough circumstantial evidence in the similarities of the four cases to file his own case with the district attorney's office. Gargiulo was charged with both Bruno and Ellerin's murders on the 20th of October 2008. It took almost three years but on the 7th of July, 2011, the Cook County State's Attorney charged Gargiulo with the first-degree murder of Trisha Pacaccio as well. It took a long time for the Hollywood Ripper to have his day in court. 
too many loose ends, had to be tied up, and in the interim, Garjula was held incarcerated at L.A. County Jail. Los Angeles County Sheriff's homicide detective Mark Lilienfeld said Garjulo gave law enforcement authorities a cryptic statement in 2008 after he was jailed in California. According to Lilienfeld, Garjulo said he was an air conditioner repairman and was in thousands of homes over the years. Garjulo allegedly further told authorities that, and I quote, just because ten women in those homes were killed and my DNA was present does not mean I murdered anyone. End quote. As of 2021, police have not officially linked him to any other murders. A pre-trial hearing was held on the 9th of June 2017 in Los Angeles Superior Court, with his capital crimes trial scheduled to begin in October that year. After delays, his trial began on the 2nd of May 2019. In May 2019, the media had a field day as superstar actor Ashton Kutcher testified about the crimes in court. On the 15th of August 2019, Garjulo was convicted on all counts. And so it was that on the 16th of July, the current year of 2021, Garjulo was sentenced to death. He is unlikely to be put to death anytime soon. California has not executed anyone since 2006 and Governor Gavin Newsom has halted executions for as long as he is in office. But courts have been proceeding on the assumption that executions may one day resume. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. And with that, we come to the end of the saga of Michael Gargiulo, the Hollywood Ripper. Next episode, number 155, in number, will feature a brand new Serial Killer Expo say. So, as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. Finally, I wish to thank you, dear listener, for listening. If you like this podcast, you can support it by donating on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, facebook.com slash theskpodcast, or by posting on the subreddit theskpodcast. Thank you. Good night and good luck.